You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Nan Hauser, whale researcher and president and director of the Center for Cetacean Research and Conservation. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I was making a film in Amsterdam and we just needed more footage of me underwater when I slid over the side of the boat and a whale started swimming up to me and didn't stop. And so I put my hand out to stop the whale and it just put me right on its head and flipped me over under its chin and kept trying to tuck me under his pectoral fin. And I've been with these animals for 33 years. And so it was intriguing yet terrifying at the same time because they are 50,000 pounds. And the, the big question was, as a scientist, why is this animal doing this? Only to find out about seven minutes into the encounter when I finally could look away from the whale for a second and see a huge tiger shark coming towards me with its pectoral fins down and arching its body. And at first I thought, oh, it's so big, it has to be another whale. But no, it wasn't. It was a tiger shark and it was moving fast. So then I suddenly realized, oh, yes, you know, humpbacks have this altruistic behavior that I had read about. And I had seen a little bit of it happening with other marine mammals, but hadn't really known that it was going to happen with humans. And lo and behold, he just pushed me back to the boat. So it was a 10 and a half minute encounter. And he got me back safely, arched his body around me till I got up on the back of the boat. And it was shocking. I was so surprised. I think actually I was in a bit of a state of shock because I started laughing when I got on the boat. And then about 10 seconds later, I put my hands over my eyes and started sobbing. So it was one of those mixed emotions. Oh my God, I'm still alive. And I thought he was going to kill me by mistake. Or maybe he wanted to kill me on purpose. And then all of a sudden, oh, he just pushed me away from Tiger Shark for 10 and a half minutes. It's beyond comprehension. And I think because the 33 years that I've spent with whales has been a process of growing, not just intimately with the whales, it's more the whales, they pick up on what you're thinking. And I learned that very quickly. I remember years ago, my PhD advisor had asked me, how do you get such incredible footage? How do you get the whales to stay with you? Because for me, every time you have an adventure or they give you a little piece of information, it's a gift because it's a mystery. And I said, do you want me to answer as a scientist or do you want me to tell you the truth? And he said, I would like you to tell me the truth. So I said, okay, unconditional love. I mean, I could have made up all these excuses about, oh, you do this and you just wait for them to come to you. And, and that's part of it. And that you slide in very quietly, you don't splash, but it's all this whole sort of intuitive thing that just makes so much sense for anybody who works with these animals or any animals that if you trust them and you just emit this unconditional love, they're going to pick up on it and they are going to respond. So in 27 years, I've just been here and I was in the Bahamas in the Eastern Tropical Pacific before that. So we've only had three whales come back that we know of, and this was one of them. So for this whale to come back a year and 15 days later and find our boat, come directly next to our boat, ignore everyone else on the boat, but look up at me. And I just screamed, he's back. I can't believe it. He's back. So our sight fidelity here is very, very low. And so when he did come back, I slid in the water. And 
it was a totally different experience. We swam up to each other. There was no panic in his eyes and there was no fear on my part. And I rubbed his face and we were eye to eye in a timeless moment. And then I tried to hold on to the tubercles on his face, which was a little uncomfortable. So he put his pecrofin straight out across the water and I laid on it and I just hugged him and cried. We had a beautiful, beautiful encounter together for probably about 35 minutes, just being together. And it was a reunion. So when they leave here, they follow this linear constant course segment. And it is so linear that they don't even deviate by one degree. And how they do that in this vast blueness is beyond anything that man could ever do. That's for sure. So if I put my boat in front of them, they will go under it instead of around it. So they're following this linear line. And then according to the declination of the moon, they're making these angles. 23.439 degrees and multiples of that. So obviously the declination of the moon has to do with gravity, but where are they picking this up? Is it cellular? It's got to be somewhere in their cells. It's got to be somewhere in their being. And this is what we're having trouble finding out exactly. So 23.439 degrees, of course, is the Earth's axis. It's the tilt of the planet. So they're using celestial navigation, but not in a sense that we would understand it by looking up and using telescopes and using our eyes. They're feeling it. And so they will take that turn and use it in multiples and then follow another linear constant course segment. But we're not just seeing it in humpbacks. We're seeing it in killer whales. We're seeing it in turtles, sooty shearwaters, penguins, elephants. We're seeing it in animals that are in the sky, that are on land and that are underwater. And that's what blows my mind. How is this happening? And so that's what I often think about when I'm falling asleep. It's just such a great mystery. I started out with dolphins. I spent a lot of my childhood in Bermuda, so I was around dolphins quite a bit. And I used to go down and sit at this dolphin grotto, and I would be just amazed at their intelligence and their happiness. They just are such happy beings. But I would also watch the humpbacks from off the shore, and it would squeal every time I'd see a blow. But then the big question was, what are they doing underwater? So I really wanted to study both, but I started with dolphins and they are a species of their own. <laughs> Every species of cetacean has their own vibration and their own personality and their own habits and their own beauty and culture. And so I really loved that. But while I was out there studying dolphins, I would see other species of whales. And I kind of went into these really rare whales that have been around while the dinosaurs were here. You know, they're 25 million years old and probably older than that, actually. And they were fascinating to me. And then I went into sperm whales and then I went into all different kinds of other species. But then I was sent out to the South Pacific to specifically look at a population of humpbacks out here. And that was many years ago. And I'm just so fascinated by humpback and their beauty and their acrobatic abilities and their level of consciousness. They really communicate with you constantly. And it's like you have this relationship with them that you don't even have to use words. It just amazes me how we can have reflections of such beauty and reflections of the world through these animals. So it's reflections of the beauty of the, and the wonder of the natural world, but it's also reflections in the beauty of ourselves and nature and wildlife. And it's like awakening to your true self. And so many people miss this in life and some people just observe it, but some people really embrace this mystery. And that's what I think is the important thing because when we embrace this mystery, we realize that we 
have infinite possibilities for the most profound journey that we could ever choose with responsibility. I think it wakes you up and says, this is not just a trip that we're taking to enjoy. This is a trip that we are on to help with the future of the world and of animals. We're inspired by these animals. And that's really important to me. But we have to stick with it. I don't think a lot of people even realize this, how absolutely important whales are. And not just because they're beautiful and they make people happy, but whales actually carry nutrients from the depths where they feed back to the surface. And there's this incredible liquidy plume of fecal matter, and it's called the whale pump. And they bring all these nutrients upward with their tails by swimming up and down the water column. So it's like an upward biological pump. And there's a good amount of nitrogen that's released in these fecal plumes, which my favorite term for that is punamis, because there's a lot of it. And we get this great soup of nutrients. In fact, we get more nitrogen than all the rivers combined. I mean, this is huge. And so in the past, we've recognized microbes and plankton and fish and uh, that they recycle nutrients in the ocean, yet whales and other marine mammals have largely been overlooked. And that's really too bad because they are bioengineers. They help the climate so much because with all this creates more plankton by circulating the nutrients and fertilizing the phytoplankton with their poo. For instance, just sperm whales alone in the Southern Ocean help sequester over 19 million trees worth of carbon. They, they are bioengineers of their ecosystems and of our ecosystems. They promote the growth of phytoplankton, which absorbs carbon. So if we just had so many whales, that could be an incredible solution for us to really help with the mess we've made. And there's also the whole thing about the whale fall. They promote the growth of phytoplankton, which absorbs carbon. So if we just had so many whales, that could be an incredible solution for us to really help with the mess we've made. And there's also the whole thing about the whale fall. It's when a whale dies and the crabs and the worms and the clams and everything start to eat it. Well, the, the carcass itself of a whale transports about 190,000 tons of carbon. That's what is produced by about 80,000 cars every year. So when you think about saving the whales, you're actually thinking about saving the people whether it's your family or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or whatever. And this is a really big issue for me because I have nine grandchildren and I worry about them and what their responsibility will be and what we are leaving them because we are leaving them a, a big mess. And we need to think beyond immediate results and consider the next steps and the consequences. And I think we tend to forget to do that because otherwise they're going to get stuck with it. Everybody thinks that in the 60s, we saved whales. We didn't at all. I mean, even the population that Callie and I are down here working on in the South Pacific, we're the last of the endangered population of migratory humpback whales in the world. And Oman is the last of the non-migratory population of endangered humpbacks in the world. But there are many, many species endangered of other whales. And they're going to be a lot more because climate change will affect them, their food and their migration, their navigation. So that much hasn't changed because we still have all the nets that are set up. 
we still have anthropogenic noise, which is getting worse with the military testing and with so many ships and whales are getting used to the noise. And so they're getting hit by boats and Iceland's going to start killing fin whales. And that's just sickening to me. And the Japanese are still killing whales and talking about going back down to the Southern Ocean. What's the point? It's just, it's bewildering to me. So besides all that, the invisible threat, of course, is poisons. So the big thing is, for instance, the fat-soluble chemicals, the organohalogens, the PCBs, all that, they're stored in the blubber of animals and especially whales because they're not water-soluble, they're fat-soluble. So the only way they can get rid of them is to nurse their young. And it crosses over the mammary shield. And then the calf gets this download of incredible toxin and has learning disabilities. It sometimes has a deformed spine. It sometimes dies. Mother's milk should be healthy and enriching, and instead it's poison. So we can't exactly see how poisonous we're getting these whales to be. We did do a project. We first started calling it Global Ecotox. And what we did is went around the world and collected samples on the Odyssey when Roger Payne was still alive. And the findings are shocking at how polluted a lot of these animals are. But what we're doing to them, we're doing to us too. And it just seems like all these huge corporations don't care. It's all about money and power. They don't care for poison. Only the males sing. Females vocalize, but the males actually sing songs. A song is something that is repeated over and over again. It's made up of phrases. And it's quite fascinating. This all came from Bermuda, from Frank Watlington, who gave Roger the songs that were collected by the military. They were all top secret back in the day. And then they were released. And so, yeah, the 1964 Bermuda Whale Song is the most famous in the world. And it's beautiful. It was actually a page in the back of National Geographic when I was a kid. A little piece of vinyl you rip out of your National Geographic magazine and put on your little record player. I still have mine. We know that Roger theorized in 1972 that humpback males sing to attract females. And we know that's true. At least it's to let the females know that the males are here. The females don't go, ooh, there's a male singing over there. I'm going to go check them out. It doesn't happen that way. And the males... They sing a song in a certain area, and then the next year, it's a completely different song, and the next year, a different song and a different song. And so it's really exciting to drop the hydrophone and hear what song is being sung this year. And yet what we found by collecting thousands of songs all the way from Western Australia to South America is that these phrases, and each song is made up of four or five phrases, a phrase of the song is being passed across Oceania. It's called horizontal cultural transmission over a huge ocean basin because we can have a phrase in Western Australia and then the next year we'll go, wait, that phrase is in Eastern Australia. And then the next year it's in New Caledonia and then Tonga and Samoa and the Cook Islands and French Polynesia. And it took two years, but then it made it all the way to South America. So it's fascinating that the phrases of the songs are being passed like ripples across the Southern Hemisphere. Now, we're not sure so much about the Northern Hemisphere, which we will hopefully find out a lot more. But one of the things I wanted to do is to compare Northern Hemisphere song in Bermuda with the song here, because it's comparing North Atlantic with South Pacific, and it's also comparing Northern Hemisphere with Southern Hemisphere. So I started that a couple of years ago with Cornell 
and none such expeditions. And it's been really, really fascinating. Lots more to follow on that. But so, okay, you ask, why do they sing the songs? Well, I could probably give you a thousand different answers, and I don't know if any of them are right. I always say to my audience, why do you think whales sing songs? And it's probably passing data along. It's probably talking about maybe the feeding grounds or the migration or whatever it's talking about. There is data. There has to be data in there. And I know that we're all trying very hard and using artificial intelligence and everything right now to try to figure out even more clearly why this song is so important and how it's being passed on. But I cannot give you a completely stable answer. I'm not sure that I I think that they are way far beyond us. And I'm not sure if we'll ever understand it. It's all about sexual selection. But yeah, so two males will come together and they'll compare song. And as if to say, my song is more beautiful. I can hold my breath longer. My lungs are bigger. I can sing a more beautiful song. So bugger off and go sing over here, but I'm going to sing here. But it's really funny because you will see these two whales and then they start competing in different ways, not just through song, but breaching and trying to impress the female. And they'll be bashing into each other and trying to get into the right position to impress her. And she'll take the underdog sometimes. I've never like, oh, but that other one's so much bigger. His breach was so much higher. Yeah. Boy, the love between whales is unbelievable, especially the mother and calf. It's just fierce love. It's just beautiful. She will protect that animal with every part of her being. And I think one of the projects that I have done in the past is to take ex-whalers out. And when they're with a mother and calf, they cry because, of course, they had been in a position in the past of killing a mother or interfering with mother and calf or even killing a calf. And to see that love between them, oh, I'm not sure there are words that can describe it. This altruistic behavior of humpbacks specifically helping each other, but other species and helping seals and protecting other whales from killer whales. I've even seen them protecting sharks from other whales that want to eat the sharks. It's a deep concern that they have that is beautiful. They're not gaining anything from it. So it really is true unconditional love. And it's mysterious when a a pilot whale strands and then you see the whole pod go in because one is giving a distress call. That's not stupidity. That's love. That's So humpback whales feed at the poles, the poles as in the South Pole or the North Pole, but they don't really cross the equator. So we have the Southern Hemisphere humpbacks and we have the Northern Hemisphere humpbacks. The Southern Hemisphere humpbacks, they go down to Antarctica and they feed and feed and they're gorged themselves for like four, four to six months. They'll just eat and then they will fast and they will migrate to the warmer waters of Oceania to mate and give birth, which is fascinating, but they won't eat. So they're living off their blubber. So for instance, they can, if they're 45,000 pounds, they can lose 15,000 pounds during the migration. And you think about a female, she's swimming pregnant, she's giving birth, she's feeding a young, she's creating enough milk to feed her young, who's probably gaining about 100 pounds a day. And she's swimming with it all the way back down to Antarctica. So that's why you have reverse dimorphism in humpback whales. The females are a little bit bigger than the males. They have to be. But when these whales go back down to Antarctica, to where they've been feeding for hundreds of thousands or millions of years, because of climate change, their food has moved. So the krill 
isn't there anymore or the krill has moved to another area where there's food for them. So everything's shifting. So how do these whales know, how are they going to know where to go? And this is really, really interesting. If they're used to going to a certain area to feed and they've been going there forever, suddenly their food's not there or their food has died off. A lot of species of animals aren't going to make it. They're going to become endangered and they're going to die. And that just kills me. It just absolutely kills me. You know, people think that climate change, oh yeah, right. It'll settle itself. But it's like every aspect of your life, you read more and more about how it affects everything. It's going to affect the way we travel in an airplane because of the currents. It's going to affect even our ability to get out there and observe whales and learn more and more about their behavior and their DNA and their acoustics, the winds. The climate is changing so much that we're going to lose the ability to go out and really be able to study them. And for instance, we've had babies, newborn calves, wash up over the reef into the lagoon with the mother on the other side because of the higher wave activity, because of rougher storms. And so we're seeing it. We're seeing it so much in our own lives. When are people going to start paying attention? That's what scares me. If they're not paying attention now, it's so bewildering to me. We have a voice. We have a mind. Use it. Well, I'd like to feel like we did the best we could, but I feel like we've put everything out of kilter and we have to work really hard to find a balance. And that's in nature, that's within ourselves, that's within the knowledge that we have, finding that balance. And as I mentioned before, we need to think positively. We need to stay with it. We need to have that faith that we're going to do it. And personally, I'm adamantly opposed to war. I grew up a Quaker, and I find that the greed that corporations have, we need to change that. We can't let the world be run by money and greed. We cannot be a lazy society. And I, I can only think positively. I was asked this question at the end of a documentary that we made, and I start to cry. And I start to cry, and I go, I don't know what's going to happen. And I think that we have to stand strong and not fall apart and do the very best we can together, all of us, not just some of us, all of us. Indeed, together. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.